Welcome. It's great to have you all here. You know, uh, we're going to be hearing from Roger Billings, a great scientist tonight. And pay attention, you know, because have you ever noticed in almost all the disaster movies, they start with somebody not listening to a scientist. <laughs> so see if we can avert that. Well, it's time to turn it over to someone who always helps us avert disaster. It's Dr. John with the Technology Spotlight. I hope you guys brought your fishing poles, because we are going fishing. Check this out. If you watch this video, you can see they're glowing fish. And it wouldn't be that unique, except each one of those fish are little robots. And they are swimming in this pattern because they've been programmed to do this emergent behavior and swim around like that. And at first, it may not sound too hard to do, uh, but there's a lot to it. First, I want to introduce you to this little robot. They call it Bluebot. This is something that Harvard University has been working on. And you can see that eye. Well, that's actually a camera. And there's an eye on either side. And they got a fisheye lens, which you know makes a lot of sense, right? <laughs> and because of that, they have a really wide field of view. So they can see almost 180 degrees, you know, um, the whole side on either side. And then for fins, it's got these very special custom-made actuators. You can see how there's one in the back, there's one on the top, and then two on the front that help it steer. And then one of the really special things is the lighting. It has special LED lights. And you'll notice how there's one on the top and one on the bottom. Those are a very special distance apart, and that's how they can tell how far away from each other they are. The eye sees the two lights from another fish, and if they're further apart, that means the fish is closer. And if they're closer together, that means the fish is further away. So it's able to use that to do uh, some of this swarming uh, stuff. Let's take a look at the program that makes the fish swarm. It has two roles. One role, if there's a fish in front of you, then turn slightly to the left. If there's no fish in front of you, turn slightly to the right. And that's the whole program. That's, that's what they do. And um, with that little teeny program, they can do this amazing swarming behavior. Let's take another look at that swarming. And uh, notice they're going to drop in another fish and see how it changes and pull one out. Here it comes. Let's put some more fish in and see how at first it doesn't know where to go. And then they kind of spread out and they respond to each other. And then one gets a little bit confused, but he jumps back in line. Uh, so this is really amazing because it would actually take a pretty complex program to tell each fish how to move, you know, to get exactly what you want. But there's a really simple program in each fish, and together it makes this emergent behavior. Uh, I want to show you another trick they can do. This time we'll look at the program first, and then we'll watch the video. You can see in the first slide on the left is when we put the fish in and they're looking for the red light. This is a search and rescue. And so the first thing they do is they spread out. They see where each other are and they move away from each other and they search the whole tank. And then as soon as one of them finds it, it starts blinking its beacon saying that it found it. And when the others see the blinking beacon, 
they stop searching and they go towards the blinking beacon. And then as soon as they find it, they start blinking. And so uh, they're able to find something in the tank much faster than if it was just one fish, for example. All right, so now let's watch the video. Notice how we have a side view and a top view, and they're just kind of spreading out looking, looking, looking for that light. And then one of them notices it, and it starts blinking. And so the others start going towards that. If you watch, you can see them moving over there. And as they find it, then they'll start blinking as well. And pretty soon, all of the fish have found it in a pretty short amount of time. And now I know what kind of bait to use, a red light, right? <laughs> and get those fish, yeah. So uh, this is pretty preliminary technology, but you can see how there's actually a lot of power in using a bunch of robots running together to do something. And we see fish in um, the, the ocean, for real, swim in patterns like that and respond to each other. And they use more than just their eyesight. Uh, they actually have special um, nervous systems that can detect um, small differences in water pressure and stuff like that. Uh, but eyesight definitely plays a role in that. And uh, as, if we can learn more about this, then we could use these robots for, you know, maybe some search and rescue and things like that, or, you know, or maybe in our bathtubs, right? <laughs> but actually, the same technology could apply to all kinds of robots. And we may be able to make it so robots interact better with each other. For example, driving cars. It's really important that the cars notice each other, but it would be even better if they would work together to make things more efficient. You know, it would really help in places like intersections and um, the way that they change lanes and stuff. So there's a lot of potential there. Another idea that the researchers are pursuing is uh, maybe someday soon we're going to go to Mars, but it would be really nice if when we got there, we had a habitation all set up and everything turned on, you know, all ready, like when you go to the hotel, <laughs> the light's on for you, right? But uh, in order for that to work, we would need to have the robots go there and do a whole bunch of work autonomously because it's too far away for us to just remotely control them. Otherwise, it would take forever or a really long time. So if they could actually do this same type of swarming and do more advanced things like put together a structure and get everything ready, then it would be really, really useful. Uh, but I want to throw in a disclaimer here. Make sure all of you kids know that the ACD2 robot is not waterproof, so don't try this, all right? That's all the tech we have the time for. Now it's time for Breakthrough Moments in Science with Tobias. All right, well, I want to start by talking about something I think we're all familiar with, and that is echo, 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 right? Uh, you go, have you ever gone to a canyon and you shout out hello, and then you hear hello, and it comes back, it sounds like you, sounds like you, doesn't sound like someone else. That would be cool, though, if different cliffs shape made them sound different when they came back. It'd be like tourist attractions. You'd just be on the road and say, exit 45, Kermit the Frog Canyon. <laughs> I'm going over there, and just get out there and say, Hello out there. Hello out there. <laughs> I don't like frogs. I don't like frogs. That's not very nice. <laughs> but Echo. We all know Echo. 
with sound waves, okay? And that's an important thing we need to remember tonight because we're gonna talk about radar. Now, radar is something that uses waves in a similar fashion to echoing sound waves, okay? But first, we need to jump back to the early 1900s in Britain. And Britain has an interesting situation where they're separated by most of the rest of Europe by a body of water. And between them and the rest of Europe, there's a lot of, you can't even see the other side, okay? And there's always a concern of if an enemy comes and attacks, when will they figure out or discover that an enemy is coming? And with ships, you can see them a long ways away. Oh, oh they're coming. We have time to get ready as they're sailing toward us. But when airplanes came onto the stage, all of a sudden it was different because airplanes could all of a sudden be there. And so it was a big concern in the early 1900s in Britain of how will we defend against this new technology if, if we're being attacked or if we're going to be attacked, we want to know to be ready. So they started trying to think of ways to anticipate something they couldn't even see. And somebody had an eye, I know, airplanes are loud, right? So if we could hear them, we could maybe alert everyone. So they started making some structures like this. They call them sound mirrors. And these are huge cement dishes, and a guy would take a, basically a stethoscope and stick it on the center and listen. And here's, here's some other ones that they had. These are just great. Um, they're like big trumpets and dishes going to a guy's ears. And this one's my favorite. Um, look at his face. I love my job. <laughs> but that, they tried this, and it was like, oh, they're coming. Oh, wait, that's a mosquito. Because it was picking up all kinds of sound. It was not very successful. But they were trying to capture those waves of sound and somehow amplify it so they could hear it better and then be able to know they're coming. Well, we have to stop because all of a the sudden there was a rumor. And you know how rumors can be. Well, there was a rumor that another country in Europe, a country of concern to them at the time, had come up with a new weapon. And it was considered basically a sci-fi weapon. They have a new weapon where it's a gun, but it shoots out radio wave beams. And the rumor was they could point this at you and it probably made a cool sound and it would kill you, even from a long distance away. If you were in an airplane flying over, they could just go and kill the pilot. Well, of course, this rumor ended up not being true, but they heard this rumor, and that sounded incredibly advanced and scary. So they put out an announcement and said, we're going to have a contest. We want British engineers to come up with our own radio wave beam gun, and whoever can kill a sheep at 100 yards is going to win a thousand dollars, a thousand pounds. We need to be proper. A um, thousand pounds, and that's a huge sum of money, especially at the time. And so they all start trying to come up with how can you do this. Now, no sheep were harmed in this, um, fortunately for the sheep, because nobody was able to do it. Now, one of the scientists working on this was Robert Watson Watt, and you hear that last name Watt. Oh, that is, is that like the power, the Watt? Oh, well, he's actually related to James Watt who is what Watt is named after. But so he probably just felt like he had science in his bones. But he was working on this, and he found this is not going to happen. And he kept working at, on the radio waves, and he noticed something, and certain characteristics of these waves that, of course, these are electromagnetic waves. That's what radio waves are. And he started to think we could use this almost like a bat 
uses sound. Remember, bats basically are blind, and they fly around making click squeak sounds, and the sound waves go out, it hits objects, that bounces back, and it knows, oh, I, I have some stuff bouncing back from here, there's an object there, and they can tell where objects are and maneuver very quickly through them. And he starts thinking, what if we sent out radio waves and then analyzed and basically listened, but it's not sound, for bounce back of those radio waves off of objects. And that would allow us maybe to find things we can't see. And so he took this to the British government and they said, okay, why don't you do an experiment and actually prove this is a real idea. So he did an experiment and they staged an airplane to fly by very far away and he was able to pick up this airplane on his small system up to eight miles away and he could discover where the airplane was just with the system. Now, how does this work? So if you look at this really simple animation, it's shooting out a radio wave. It bounces off the plane, and the radio wave bounces back. And so what's going on? Well, if you know the speed at which the radio wave is traveling, then you measure the time from when you shoot it out to the time it comes back. And you can start using that to calculate how far away that object is and where the object is, where the bounce back is coming from. So this allows them to do some pretty amazing things. And the British government says, okay, you have, you have a project. We will fund you. You have five years, and we need a system that can detect objects up to 50 miles away. Okay. Now, if you shot it at the ground, it wouldn't really make sense because it's bouncing off all kinds of things. But up in the air, where there's nothing, there's no metal object except this airplane or a fleet of airplanes, that's really different. Well, it took him five months to do the project. And after he finished the project, they named it the Telemobiloscope. <laughs> Bring out the Telemobiloscope. <laughs> yes. um, and a as things started to progress with uh, current uh, wars that were going on, battles, um, Churchill decided to turn around and team up with the, the Americans. And he said, let's give all of our telemobiloscope information to the Americans, which was very top secret, so that we can work together and figure out how to make this work better. Well, the Americans, I don't know if they did it first, but one of the things the Americans did said, so we're going to call it RADAR, <laughs> and it's an acronym for Radio Detection and Ranging, and apparently they liked that, because that became the word, it's RADAR. And they started to experiment with microwaves, so frequencies that were much, much faster. And Cool little inside side story is one of the guys in America working on this named Percy Spencer. He's working on these radar systems and his chocolate bar melts in his pocket from the microwaves and he would go on to invent the microwave cooker with this technology. But with microwaves, they were able to get their radar systems to sense things much further. And so this would completely transform uh, warfare and a lot of other technologies. And there's one more jump that they had in this that was a big game changer, and that was what they called the Doppler effect. Because they figured out a way to not just send it out, wait for it to bounce back, and then calculate, okay, it's over there and it's this far away. They figured out a way to use that information to determine, okay, it's over there, that far away, but it's coming toward us this fast. And the way that they did that was, if you think about like a duck swimming on water, the direction that the duck is swimming, if you look at this picture, you can see in front of the duck, look at how tightly packed those waves are. And then behind, it's much more spread out. 
So if you shoot a radio wave, it's kind of like if you're standing on the road and the car goes by it and it goes, that's the, if you're making a sound effect of a car going by, that's the sound effect that you make, right? It's, it goes down. That's because as it's coming to you, those sound waves are getting tighter and tighter. It, the frequency is increasing, which means the pitch goes up, it goes by, and now that frequency is less, and so the pitch drops. Well, if they shoot out the radar, radio wave, and it hits something that's coming to you really fast, then when it bounces back, that frequency is going to be much greater than when you sent it out. So using that, they call it Doppler radar. They were able to determine the speed at which something was moving. And this is used not just in the military, it's used in weather forecasting uh, to be able to predict the systems, how they're moving, how fast they're moving. So a, a really big game changer in a lot of things. So just remember, next time you're out there in the canyon talking to Kermit, okay? <laughs> You never know what idea might come bouncing back. Thank you. All right. And now introducing Roger Billings. Well, you barely made it. <laughs> wow. Technical difficult. Yeah, Charge your they, batteries. They, they couldn't get me all the way here. I'm yeah. only halfway here today. <laughs> so nice you're here. Yeah. So what do you think, Kermit the Frog? I'd like to hear your Kermit the Frog impersonation. <laughs> I was just wishing okay. he'd come back and do that. I wish you would too, but he's gone, so go ahead. I don't have a Kermit. You don't have a Kermit? No, but I know you have a double duck. <laughs> like to hear that one too. Okay, well we'll we'll give you some time to work on that. You know, this this is robot time. Okay. We have had so many little robots charging out all over the world. Yeah, we you know, do. we had a policy on, on our Celis robots and things. We don't ship internationally. Well we do now. <laughs> hear that? We do now. Yeah. Someone got really clever. They, they found out David won't ship internationally. So they started sending messages to Payday. Yeah, <laughs> now David know. ships internationally. Yeah, that, that's a true story right It's there. amazing how things work. You know, there's, there's something else. Someone asked Joshua, so Joshua asked me, can you enter the science fair with a science project and a robot project? And said, no. Make up your mind to one or the other, mm -hmm. didn't I? Oh yeah, and I that even was announced the it. But today, Tanya asked me. <laughs> so we have a new policy. <laughs> of course you can. <laughs> Thank you, Tanya. I love your inspiration. But you know why not, Joshua? Really, why not? So of course you can, and we can ship anywhere. Yes. Uh, uh, except Mars. Yes. And we will do Mars hopefully soon. But it, uh -huh. it is fun because robots have gone out everywhere. Now we run into a problem because we have a contradiction. We have two things we want to do and they're mutually exclusive, which means you can do either one but not both. Okay, and here it is. We have a course. You can even get a half a credit for taking this little robot mini course, mm -hmm. but you take the course and you get your credit because you're done, and the course 
disappears. And when you log in, it's not there anymore because you finished it. You know, when you finish uh -oh, courses, they go away. Yeah. However, wouldn't that be interesting? So you got your program, you're ready to try it out on your robot, you finish the course, the course goes and you get your robot and you can't run it. That'd be sad. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> you know what? We have to make this course persistent so that even after they're done, they can still get back into that drill and run the robots. Mm -hmm. So I put a drill on the last step. At least I requested that it be done by Dr. John, and he did it. So now the kids that are trying to get their credit, you have to finish the course to get the credit, and they're trying, and they're trying, and they're trying, and there's no way to get to the end. <laughs> Uh-oh. So we've got to decide who we're going to make happy. The people that are trying to finish the course or the people that want to have the course there so they can use it to run the robot. What do you think? Think both. <laughs> so you guys think I both? I want to hear your Kermit. I'm working on it. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. All right. So what we need is for Mr. Jacob to come up with a new function, which he says he is. He's our architect of the Acellus learning system. So we're going to make it so that when you get up to that last step, you get your credit, and yet it persists so you can still do your robot. So you guys that are trying to do that, thank you for letting us know that it is a minor problem, and we will get it fixed. Until then, just keep programming. Program, program, program. It is amazing, though, the amount of response we've had. Uh, remember, you don't need an actual robot to be able to get the credit and do the class and to write these dance, but it sure is fun, isn't it? And uh, we're going to have a great science fair mm -hmm. slash STEM robot programming. I think fair. we're going to have a lot of coders who weren't going to necessarily be coders before because of this robotics class. And what do you think that? Because you, we get a lot of messages saying they want to be coders like Elizabeth and huh. others. Huh. They didn't think it was going to be so neat like It me. is fun, though, and I, I am thrilled. We are getting a lot of people doing yeah. it. Uh, I've been getting reports. Some of the parents shoot me secret reports about their kids, and I heard about this one seven-and-a-half-year-old young mm -hmm. lady that uh, did not want to take STEM until she heard all about the robots, and she's loving it. And a lot of people are. And I'm hoping that as they go through this mini course and learn how to program the robot, that they'll then want to go back and take the full STEM courses. Yeah. And I think that's going to be wonderful. Another thing is the way Dr. John made this mini course is something you can kind of get into fast. I mean, it's not just a walk in the park. You have to actually learn a little bit. But after you do, I think the things you're learning are going to help you now do well in the course. The course digs in a little deeper because the course is teaching you a lot of things that you're going to need to know later on as you learn to program robot fish to swim and swarm and things like that. So it's all, so one more shot of her. <laughs> Okay. Oh, uh, no, Emma thinks I'd make a really good Kermit the no, Frog. Let, let, I'm still working on it, though, guys. Can everyone be quiet for a minute oh, so we can listen not. to her frog? Okay, go ahead. Here we go. Let's do one of those echo things, okay? I, I was, you know, I was actually really trying to figure out how he made that sound. Where do you go in your voice? I can't find it. I really can't find it. Hmm. Which just proves Tobias is superior. <laughs> <laughs> Which is something I've always suspected. Okay. Wait a minute, guys. <laughs> 
Well, I, I really, really hope everyone will realize the value of this programming and the things that you can do with it. Coding, which is another way of saying programming, is something that is very important for everybody to learn today. Uh, one wonderful book that I recently reviewed said that coding is the new literacy. In other words, it used to be a lot of people didn't know how to read, and then literacy became very important, and so everybody started learning how to read, and now they're saying coding is the new literacy. It's something that everybody needs to know because it's going to become, it is becoming so very important in our world. And literally, you will not be able to cook breakfast <laughs> if you can't run the, the robots and the computers in the kitchen. Um, kind of brings up something I'd like to talk a little bit about today. Um, th this is kind of a, a, a story that is very personal to me, and it involves a lot of the perspective of my own walk through science. I think most of you figured out by now, I love science. Mm -hmm. I love science because it empowers people to do things that we could not do otherwise. Science is a love for knowledge, for truth, armed with some tools that help us discover truth. And the scientific method is a research method that allows you to come up with theories or ideas of what might be happening in nature and then creating experiments to prove those theories or to disprove them. And that method allows us to, to push knowledge forward more and more and more. Uh, I was just listening to a lecture by uh, Dr. John Williams of MIT, and he was talking about how fast knowledge increases in the world. And it used to be that you know all of the knowledge of mankind would double in 100 years. And now it's up to where all of the knowledge of mankind is doubling every couple of years. Things are really, really moving fast. It's a different kind of a world. As fast as things are moving, there's a couple things we ought to know. And I'm just going to say that this is my own opinion. This isn't what John said. But from my perspective, there, there are two sides to this. One is I love how fast knowledge is evolving means if you want to go out and create some new ideas, some new knowledge, you can. And you can utilize There's so many things you can do. And there's so many things you can do in two years that you can't do now. It's, it's, it's amazing. But there's a flip side to that. Um, we have to maintain our own sanity. We have to stay grounded. And even though technology and coding and all of these things are moving so fast in our world and our society, sometimes it's really important to just stop and take a deep breath. I, I like to say stop and smell the roses. And we really, really, really need to do that. I encourage everybody to stay connected to our planet. Whenever you can, I think it's wonderful to get your fingers in the dirt. And, and what I mean by that is, isn't it wonderful to know plants? Plants are the reason we're not starving to death. If it wasn't for plants, we would run out of food so fast. Plants are amazing. And you can grow plants in a garden. You can also grow them in a pot, just a little teeny 
potted plant could be a way to touch. But one of the things that's so special about plants and about growing plants is they don't grow fast. Plants grow slow. And sometimes I think it's good for us to just slow down and feel that and understand that our very existence is based on these slow growing, always there, always reliable processes like sunrise and the beautiful things. Enjoy the thrill of living in a time when, when mankind's knowledge is advancing so fast. But keep yourself calibrated and vertical by staying connected to the fact that days are exactly the same length they used to be. And that plants grow just like they used to. And you can be part of that process and, and keep yourself grounded. I love to put my fingers in the dirt. And I'm not, I'm not talking about just a plane in the dirt. I'm talking about, you know, doing plants. I love to plant seeds. And yet, at the same time, to be able to just fill feel the reality of our existence on our earth and, and how much we have to be grateful for. But now, in, in this context of how fast the world is moving, I want to back up a, a few years. Uh, I've been looking at a wonderful documentary that was filmed decades ago, but it's brand new to me. I, I just was very fortunate to be able to enjoy it because of the workings of Joseph Joseph tracked this thing down for us, and I'm going to share parts of it. But it's a documentary about my mentor, Bill Lear. You know, Learjet, Bill Lear, the guy that I had a wonderful opportunity to be mentored by very early in my career. Um, you know, we spent almost a year with Mr. Lear and with his wife, Moya. We lived in their home at first, and then eventually we got an apartment nearby. But every day, I would just go and help him. I would follow him around. I, at least I, I hope some of it was helpful. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it wasn't like we sat down and we had a class and I wrote things. That, no, it was just watching and doing, learning by doing. Uh, and then all of these years have passed away, and then all of a sudden, this wonderful documentary comes, which has a lot of interview of Bill Lear. It, it's interviewing him. It's watching him in his work. It's talking about the things he's doing. And I learned something that was really a big surprise to me. I learned how much I learned from Bill Lear. I was surprised to see how much of what I have become is because of him. And I, I didn't know that. I just kind of became it. But it, it's too obvious when you, when you listen to him. And I'm, I'm so grateful for this. Uh, a real good example is the Bill Lear desk. Remember I told you the story about how I wanted a desk for the new office over in the 10-story building. It's going to be right there on the top floor. I can look down and see the Kansas City Airport runways. And I can look down the other direction and see downtown Kansas City. And this beautiful office. We remodeled it so that it's shaped like a UFO. Yeah. Whose idea was that? <laughs> that was, that was Kermit the Frog's idea. 
And, but we did it. And I thought, you know what? That's going to cost a lot of money. She just looked at me. Well, there went a lot of money. But now I really like it. And so I needed a desk. And I was trying to think, I want a really, really unique desk. What do you want out of a desk? Well, I want it big. I don't know why. It's the office is big. There's a lot of room for a big desk. And then I started thinking, well, I want one that really impresses everybody. That was a vain attitude, wasn't it? <laughs> I'm going to have a desk that impresses everybody. I found a desk that is made of punk art. It has all of these gears that turn that's under glass. And I thought, well, that'll mean it's a big, fancy desk made by this artist. And I actually got to see it. And everything's turning. There's big gears. And that's neat. That'll impress. And I'm impressing people again. Maybe I should have been in the laundry business, and I could do a lot of pressing. <laughs> but so then I said, no, 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 no. I need to go about this in a scientific manner. So I'm going to figure out, what do I need a desk for? Maybe I don't even need a desk. <laughs> yeah. And so then I thought about what I use my desk for, and I realized to me, my desk is a little place to sit and be organized, a little bit organized, as organized as I get. It's not very organized, anyway. And then to have meetings with the people that are working with me on the different projects. I like bringing a whole team in, and I like to have meetings with them. In my um, Billings Tower office, which is the one for Acellus, I have a table. It's glass, so there's nothing going on under the table I can watch. It's a beautiful, uh, clear glass tabletop. And there's room for three chairs on either side. And I sit on the end so we can sit there and have a meeting. And I realized that in those meetings that people are facing each other. And they have to cock their heads to, to look at me, which is OK. I thought, I'd like to have a desk where I can look directly into everyone's face so I can see their eyes and try to understand what their ideas are and hear what they're saying. So I thought, well, I'll have a round desk. I'll be like the round table, and everybody will be right. And then I thought, the problem with the round desk is I can't see the guy over here and over here. I mean, the, the, it, it doesn't work. Round doesn't work. So then I made what I thought was a big invention. And the invention was to cut the desk in half. So it's a half circle desk. Can you imagine that? And I'll sit right there on the the straight edge, and the rounded part to be out there, and have people sit all around. And that way, I can look directly at every single person. I want it big enough so I can have, oh, like six or seven people sitting out there. And I thought this was an incredible idea. So then I went on the internet to find it. Half circle desk. Darn any. I must have really made a new invention. Maybe I should patent this. Half-circle desks. <laughs> but you know, you don't ever want to jump to conclusions until you check out eBay. Because <laughs> everything's on eBay. So I went on eBay. Half-circle desk. <laughs> One came up. And there was a picture there. And my eye immediately went to the picture. And it was a half-circle. It was flat. In fact, on the flat side, there was a little cutout. So a person could kind of sit up in there all cozy. And then it was a big half circle. It was exactly what I invented. Uh, that's got to be the desk. So then I zoomed back from the picture and started looking on the whole screen. And up at the top it says, desk of 
William P. Lear. And all of a sudden, I realized where that invention came from. <laughs> because that was the desk I sat at when he was mentoring me. And I even knew which spot was mine. I was the second one over. That was my little place I would hold out because it was in his office. And lo and behold, as some of you already know, I bought the desk and <laughs> nothing happened. I paid. No one contacted me. Zero. Mm -hmm. Nada. Nothing. Waited a few days. Started getting nervous. So I contacted the seller, no response. And I started really getting nervous. So I did what any desperate scientist would do. I went to Dr. Peget. <laughs> That's true. I already did, and I said, yeah. hey, yeah. this amazing builder desk, I don't know, it just felt like it's the one I really should have. It's made out of tiki wood. Mm -hmm. Tiki wood, that's amazing wood. It was custom made for Bill Lear. Bill Lear designed it. His wife, Moya, had it made. And the top is leather, mm -hmm. elephant leather, real elephant leather. Oh, this would be an amazing desk to have because such a legacy. So lo and behold, she put on her private investigator hat. I have lots of hats. Yeah, <laughs> because she can't do Kermit. <laughs> she does things like that. I'm working on being superior. <laughs> right, there you, you know, go. Right. But anyway, she tracked down. And what had happened is this thing had been on eBay waiting for me to invent it for so long that Mrs. Lear, the person that had listed it, this is not Moya Lear, but this is the daughter-in-law, <laughs> had forgot she'd listed it. And she hadn't been active on for a while. So we had to track her down through some people, or not necessarily we. I can be persistent. Yes, she found her. Know. Anyway, she's <laughs> such a, a sweet person. And when she found out that we'd actually been trying to buy the desk, she worked with us, we got it. It needed a little bit of fixing up because it had been in a warehouse for a long time. And so uh, some, especially one of our students, took that on as a project. And now we've got it up in the office, and it's absolutely beautiful. But here's my point. I invented that desk until I remember that I sat on it when I was with Bill Lear. And then when I watched this documentary, there's all these things that he said and did. Uh, oh, that's where I got that idea. That's where I got that thinking. And I found out that a lot of my attitudes, a lot of my mannerisms, and a lot of my approach in the scientific method came from that year of mentoring. And I have a completely new respect for Mr. Lear because of that. It's kind of thrilling. And, and all I'm doing is warning you. Be careful or you may pick up some mannerisms from these discussions. You may pick up what I think is the most important mannerism I got from Bill Lear, and that is I can. Bill Lear taught me that I can do things that I never dreamed people could do. I mean, he did something absurd. He made a, his own jet airplane that would fly up above the weather and carry people away. I mean, he sold it to these big stars and everything else. And yet, I found out he was just a person. I found out where he ate. I found out where he lived. I found out everything about him. And I found out people can do things like this if they believe in themselves. And they really can. The thing I want to share today, though, mm -hmm 
is an episode that kind of puts something very important into perspective. Remember we talked about the optimism curve. You start off at the very beginning of a project, everything looks so good, and then you start finding out all the problems and the optimism goes down. And then as you start solving the problems one by one, it climbs back up very slow. And it seems like on all of the really important uh, breakthrough projects that you do, it seems to go through a cycle like that. You wouldn't start out if you weren't really excited and optimistic, but you don't keep doing it if you get discouraged, unless you're very persistent. And I think we really need to be persistent and not get discouraged. I'd like to take just a minute and share with you one of the experiences of my career when I think I had perhaps the biggest reason I ever had to be discouraged. And um, what I learned is the sun still comes up tomorrow. Now, it may not come up until tomorrow, but it does come up tomorrow, and it's, you know, it's pretty reliable. It's very reliable. And I, I find a, a great source of inspiration by that stability of our, of our world and our lives. So here's, here's the part of the story that I want to tell you. I was very interested in what was happening in, in the computer industry. When I started out in the university, we were using mainframe computers, great big giant computers. And when I would take my program over the mainframe, I would do it by punching holes in little cards, like postcards. And I have a whole box, in fact, I had two or three boxes. I'd take over and hand to the guy through the window. He'd run the cards, they had a card reader, read through these reads and these cards, find little holes, that would tell the computer what your program was. And then I'd come back the next day, because usually my programs were of what you call overnight priority, <laughs> and we'd get a printout. And quite often the printout said that there was a syntax error and so they couldn't run. But that was computers when I started. And as I started getting into things and got through with my schooling, I learned a little, little bit of coding. I did some Fortran, some what for, some assembly language, some of that stuff. Then we went on our adventure with Lear. And when I came back, uh, I became very interested in the fact that computers were about ready to change. And the change, I thought, was going to come about because these little microprocessors. So you could take everything that was in that big mainframe computer, and that was in a single chip. And I thought about that for the longest time. It just shook me. Now everybody will have their own computer. And you say, well, yeah, of course we do. But that day, back then, nobody thought that. But I did. I thought they'll all have their own computer. And if everybody's got their own computer, the challenge is to figure out how to get the information that everybody wants in a form so everybody can share it. And there wasn't a real straightforward way to do that. Now we know real well, but then we didn't. No one had seen how to do that. And the people that were starting to try were running into all kinds of problems. And so I started really focusing on this. And the only way that I had to do it was by doing mental experiments, you know, where you try things out in your head, you see if it'll work. And over time, I came up with the idea of having a computer for every person. That idea was real easy to come up with. 
but then having a different type of computer that was just kind of like a library where the information would be stored. And by doing that, by having these other computers, which we now call servers, I called them data centers, but called servers, that people could just go to any of these servers and get the information they want. We do that all the time on the internet. Like, we go to a website. If you want to find that, you go there. You want to know which website to go on, you do a search. Then you go to the website that has the information you want. Client-server computing. But at the time, there was no such animal. And lo and behold, I came up with this idea. I was so excited about how revolutionary it would be, I filed a patent, which eventually was issued. And that patent, uh, I believe, is the foundational patent on client-server computing. I think it's one of the biggest technology things I've ever done. But then I had to build it and show everybody that it could work. So I built a computer, a personal computer, to be one of the user nodes, and then I built a server to be the library node in the middle. And the first thing I got out was the user computers. And I started building those and selling them. And I started selling them quite successfully. But lo and behold, as this business started to explode and grow, and there's a lot of stories, but as it did, I started to have a little bit more money than I did before. We got up to about $10 million a year of sales, and I'm rolling along, and my net worth was $36.5 million, which to me was enough money to, uh, you know, really get full of myself. Yeah, I was, whoa. I really, really thought I was doing great, and I was rolling along. We're manufacturing these computers. Everything was going well. We're starting to get these servers out now. I'm starting to sell some of those. This is going to completely change the computer world. One day, I went to work. And my, my staff almost looked shocked to see me. It was a strange feeling. I went up to my office, and, and I asked my assistant, so what's wrong with everybody he says, you haven't seen the article yet, have you? What article? He handed me a copy of the Wall Street Journal. And there on the front page of the Wall Street Journal was a picture of me. Front page article. No one had called me. No one had talked to me. And, you know, they could have put one of my real nice pictures on there, but they didn't. They did a sketch. And, you know, these artists... He did a sketch that made me look like I was some kind of a mafia hitman. You know, Roger Billings. And it was not a good article. In fact, I think I have a, a copy of it just if you want to read the Wall Street Journal from back in the day. Okay, and there's the picture. It's hard to doubt shareholder faith in hitman Roger Billings. That's there he is. Da-da-da-da. That's not a bad picture. But this article said some amazing negative things. One of the things it said is that my hydrogen cars and buses and things were junk. Mm -hmm. Just a dumb idea. But the other thing it says is my computers were junk. It said that, uh, you know, Roger Billings says he's a very important person in your life. And, you know, I'd have more credibility if they'd ask me. I mean, if they'd contact me or anything. I, I didn't know anything about the story. But it's interesting, they said he thinks 
that his hydrogen is going to change the whole future of, of energy. And now he says his new computer is going to put all the mainframes out of business, which client server, by the way, did. <clears throat> they didn't ever do a follow-up story and say, well, sorry, we were wrong. <laughs> but they said that they, they interviewed, they didn't have time to interview me, but they interviewed the city manager, the guy that was in charge of managing the city where I, I had my factory. And the city manager says, yeah, it's really too bad that Roger wouldn't pay his power bill. So we had to turn off his power at his computer factory. I never had my power turned off. Yeah, he said, you know, he wouldn't pay his bill, so we had to turn it off. And, and it says, all of these really, really horrible things. Well, my little company had gone public, which means my shares were traded on the public market. And when I went home the night before, I was worth $36 million. And by 10 o'clock the next morning, I wasn't worth anything. My shares fell just instantly with this story saying basically that I couldn't sell anything, that I was going broke. And actually, I just had a very profitable uh, quarter. There's nothing in the article that was accurate, but the stock just went crash. Now, to be able to finance my computer company, I needed $3 million. And so I didn't have the cash, but I had the stock that was worth so much. So I took my stock down to the broker, and I used my stock to guarantee a personal loan to get the money to do the computers. And because of that, when the stock crashed, <laughs> they sold all my shares because I own 60-something percent of the company. They sold it all so that I didn't, I, I didn't own the company anymore. I had a little bit left. But basically, they cleaned me out. And then the next day, the stock came back up. But I wasn't a stockholder except a small one. And then they came in and, and uh, got into a battle to take control of the company, which they did. And lo and behold, it was because I borrowed the money and because someone wrote a very ruthless, inaccurate, uh, slanderous article about me on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Well, now, I'm not trying to make you cry for me, even though maybe a moment of silence would be good. <laughs> but what I am trying to tell you is at that moment, I felt like it was the end of the world. My wonderful technology that was going to change everything was stopped dead in its tracks. My reputation, which I thought up to that moment had been very positive, was completely devastated and destroyed. No one wanted to sell me parts. No one wanted to do anything because they thought I was a really crazy kook. And so I figure it's the end. I own this wonderful company we were doing so well. Now I don't. I'm wiped out overnight. And then after that, they did a series of other things, including lawsuits and... and uh, <laughs> Everything imaginable happened, and I went from really having it all to having nothing. So I had to do some serious talking to Tanya. And we just said, what are we going to do? Um, 
maybe we could find an island out in the Pacific somewhere <laughs> and take up fishing. But the, the thing that we did do is we said, hey, it will pass. We'll get through this. We believed in tomorrow. We believed, and because of that, the positive energy of a positive attitude came through. And I literally had to start over. Start over with no money. Uh, all of the assets, my laboratories, my hydrogen patents, everything were taken away. I believe that that event slowed hydrogen down by 15 years. Eventually, I built it back up. And as far as the technology of the computers and that, what it meant is I never got credit for my inventions. But you know what? I learned a lot. We dug in again. We started over. Literally, we started over. And this time I said, you know what I'm never going to do again? I'm never going to get myself in debt so they can do that to me again. And since that day, everything I do, I don't do it with borrowed money. Everything I do is 100% fully paid for. And that's a, a great way to operate. It's, it's like hyper-conservative, but you know what? It, you're not vulnerable if you don't leverage yourself. And I, I was highly leveraged, just thinking, you know, that nothing could ever happen. And, and when you do that, you're setting yourself up to be vulnerable. But the, the point I want to make tonight isn't about whether you should be leveraged, which means you borrowed a lot of money. And you have to pay it back, and if you don't, they can go after your assets. Or whether, uh, you know, the way it should be is you'd be a little bit more conservative. Um, it's fascinating the power that came in here. Later in life, I learned why someone wrote that story. It wasn't because they had information they needed to tell, because it was all made up. And I found out that my loss was someone else's gain. And I found out that there are unscrupulous people that'll do things like that. And all you have to do is be successful and you'll be attacked. Some of you know that this year, this past year, I was absolutely attacked again in the Wall Street Journal of all places because 60% of the schools in Hawaii got to sell us. And you know, that's a big percent and it scared the competition. And so they came out and, and that article was more ruthless than the one three decades ago. Interestingly though, when that article hit, no one could call my loan and liquidate my stock because I didn't have any loans. And while it hurt my feelings, in fact, truth be known, I didn't even read the article. That's okay. Some people told me, you don't want to read this. This is really bad. And they yeah. say, well, it can't be, can't be as bad as the last one. It is. Okay, so I didn't even read it. Someday I'll get up the courage. But the interesting thing is, that article came out, a lot of schools got very nervous because it said some really bad things about a cellus and everything else. But we didn't lose our students. In fact, uh, a handful of schools dropped out, like less than 10, but we picked up over 100 more the publicity, people said, well, is it that bad? And, and they said, no. I said, well, maybe we should look into it. And so, and the enrollments in the Cellus Academy and Power Homeschool, they just have grown and grown and grown. So 
you know what? Um, I, I think if I read that article, I'd really be offended. But I don't want to be offended. I, I'm just glad to know that there's a difference of opinion about me. <laughs> I, I don't know who wrote the article. I don't know why they wrote it. I know that the things people have told me about it are absolutely unfounded. Anacellus does work. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, in Hawaii, they said Acellus is racist. <laughs> it's sexist. We're racist because one of our lessons says Barack Obama's the first black president of the States. I think he was. We're sexist because we had a clip in there where Walt Disney was telling about the seven dwarfs. Mm -hmm. And he said Grumpy was a woman hater. And so that made Acellus sexist. Well, anyway, I mean, there's a lot of things we can do to improve Acellus. And a lot we've done because they came out with all these criticisms. We actually invented uh, 23 new courses, which we modified just for Hawaii with all the changes they wanted because they said we had these defects. Well, originally I just fixed the courses, but a lot of people started saying, we don't want those changes. We want the stuff that's there. Don't, this, this is ridiculous. So I said, well, how am I going to make everybody happy? It's like the end of class. <laughs> and so we made, we had our regular version of SELA, so we made the special Hawaii courses. And all the schools in America now can use either version of the course. And in the Hawaii version, we went through this big document and we changed everything they thought might be offensive. And lo and behold, here we are, the, cell, the schools in Hawaii are still using the cells like crazy. And guess what? No one's using the Hawaii courses. <laughs> I find that really, really interesting. <clears throat> but the interesting thing is you have to be respectful mm -hmm. of anything that might hurt anybody's opinion or be offensive. At the same time, you've got to do the mission of educating the students. Bottom line is, Acellus works. Kids are doing well. Even in Hawaii, kids are doing really, really well. They were going to just throw Acellus completely out in Hawaii until the parents and the schools started saying, wait, we've never seen anything that worked like this. And so now they've let them continue. It'll be interesting to see what they do next year. But meanwhile, Acellus grows. And so here's two difficult, impossible, I'll never get beyond today days, and I'm beyond them. And I think it's, there's a lesson in that for me and maybe a lesson in that for you. Uh, your crises, some of you that are still in school, are like mine were when I was still in school and I'd have terrible things happen in one of my classes or I'd have a relationship crisis or whatever the impossible, insurmountable challenges are of your life, you'll get through it. You need to believe in tomorrow. You need to realize that just the power of positive energy, of hanging in there and not giving up, makes really, really, really good things happen. I, uh, I don't have a goal of making a lot of money. It, it doesn't fulfill me. The thing that really gets me excited is seeing a lot of students doing well in education. I feel like that's worth working for.
And I've gathered around me all these wonderful people that care about that. If they're looking to make a lot of money, you know, there's some nice companies down the street. If you care about the kids, if you care about what they're learning and how effective our courses are, and you're willing to put all these little experiments and things in the lessons to find out the best way to teach it, the best way to assess, then your desk right over there. You see what I'm saying? Don't get discouraged. If we didn't have storms, all the plants would die. Storms are an important part of our lives. Endure them well, because tomorrow will come. One of my favorite songs is when you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid. At the end of the storm is a golden sky and the silver song of the Lord. Walk on, walk on. And I believe that song. Once when I was quite a bit younger and I was having a really intense day and I just didn't know how I could ever get through it, I went out in the country where there was no one for miles, thank goodness. And I sang that song at the top of my lungs. It wasn't pretty, but it was loud. And when I got done, I felt a little bit better. So I sang it again, a little bit louder and a little bit worse. And by the time I'd done it three times, I was ready to go. Don't get discouraged. That's not part of science. <laughs> We're now going to just close by hearing Peugeot's Kermit the Frog impression. <laughs> frog in my throat and I can't. Let's hear it. <laughs> I really can't find it. Oh, just try. <laughs> I really can't. Hello, everybody. I've <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see you next time.